0: The following sermon by Timothy Dwight is called The Danger of Losing Convictions of Conscience. Matthew twelve, forty-three to 45 When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walks through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he's come, he finds it empty, swept, and garnished. Then he goes and takes with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also to this wicked generation. These words are a part of a discourse addressed by Christ to certain of the scribes and Pharisees. In consequence of the pungent sermon which he had uttered, after they had charged him with casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, they demanded of him a sign from heaven, or a proof of his messiahship. Their application for the sign seems to have been made, partly with the design of putting a stop to the distressing reproofs of Christ, and partly with the hope of confounding him by disproving his pretensions. In his reply, Christ refuses him any other sign besides that of Jonas the prophet, whose temporary burial in the fish strongly typified that of Christ in the earth. Then resuming the same forcible strain of rebuke, he uttered several very solemn and awful threatenings and concluded his remarks with the text. A more dreadful picture of the guilt and danger of these men and of all who are like them was never drawn. This passage of scripture is apparently a parable, and may be a literal representation of facts, but there is nothing in the phraseology which requires us to understand it in this sense. Whether considered as a simple or symbolical representation, it conveys to us in substance the same truths. Our sole concern lies with the things which the Savior designed to communicate, whether the facts or the persons were real or parabolical, is to us of no importance. There is scarcely a more extraordinary paragraph in the scriptures than this. Interpreters have extensively, and as I believe, justly considered it as a representation of the state of a sinner, in some degree affected with the sense of his guilt, forming resolutions of amendment, and making some attempts towards evangelical reformation, finally relinquishing them all and returning again like the dog to its vomit, and like the sow that was washed, to her wallowing in the mire. Our Savior subjoins, so shall it be also to this wicked generation." Plainly, therefore, this parable is a description of the moral state of the Jews, to a considerable extent, at the time when it was spoken. In every age and every country, where the scriptures are known there are persons whose moral condition is the same with that of these Jews, persons of a hard heart and a guilty life, who yet feel at times and of some degree their guilt and their danger. These persons usually form some designs, and even some resolutions to repent. In many instances, however, they return to their former sinful life with new, more guilty, and more hopeless dispositions. Of all such persons, this parable is no less a just description than of those Jews whom they so strongly resemble. To these, for it is believed that some of them may be found in this assembly, it is now solemnly addressed. It is hardly necessary to say that the representation is forcible and affecting, beyond example and demands, not merely the solemn and profound, but the alarmed and eager attention of all men especially of those who either are or are in danger of being in the situation here described. I think of no method in which I may unfold or impress the things contained in it more clearly and more effectually than by following the order of the parable itself and marking such passages or such particulars as are of peculiar importance to the general design. This course I shall therefore pursue. I shall consider then, number one, the miserable condition of an impenitent sinner before he is awakened to a serious conviction of his guilt. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, from this we learn that to the eye of God, the soul of such a man is the habitation of a foul and wicked spirit, who there fixes his abode. Nay, he appropriates this abode to himself as his own property. Then he says, I will return to my house from whence I came out. My house, language plainly adopted, because he regards it as his settled, proper residence, the dwelling where he steadily lives, and is literally at home. Think I beseech you of the import of these extraordinary words. What would be the condition of the poor wretch, of whom a from the bottomless pit should take entire possession, so as to render the soul of the man his property, his house, the place where he always dwelt, and where he had an undisputed control? Think what an inhabitant is here portrayed. Of what an inmate Has such a soul become the tenement? What employments must such a being pursue? In its secret chambers. How plainly must it be his prime business to seduce, to corrupt and to destroy, to rouse its evil passions and evil appetites, and to goad it into opposition to truth and righteousness. Against man it must be his delight to inspire it with injustice, fraud, "...and revenge, against God to arm it with impiety, unbelief, ingratitude, and rebellion, and against itself to direct its hostility in all the snaky paths of pollution. These must be the peculiar and incessant employments of such an impure and malignant being. Of these employments, what is the end? It is no other than to withdraw it from truth, duty, religion, hope, and heaven." and to hurry it onward to perdition. What in this case must be the character of the soul itself? The whole influence of such a spirit must arise from the fact that the soul, which he inhabits, voluntarily yields to his suggestions. He resides there only because he is a welcome guest. He works there only because a man loves to have it so. He prevails because a man chooses to submit; he rules because a man is pleased to be under his dominion. He corrupts and destroys because a man loves to be corrupted and destroyed. Whoso sins against me wrongs his own soul. All that hate me love death. But such a substance is the real state of the man in question. There may indeed be no such spirit. No impure foreign being residing, controlling, and triumphing. Still, the affections, the purposes, and the character are such as to be justly described by the strong symbolical language. The soul is such as if inhabited and corrupted by this destroyer. How dangerous, how miserable, a condition is that of a stupid hardened sinner, sold to sin and devoted by himself to destruction. It is not improbable that there are many persons present who will hardly be induced to believe this representation. Let me request every one of them to remember that these things are all said by the Savior of men, the final judge of the quick and the dead, that it is declared by him, by the voice of inspiration, that he knows what is in man that he declares of himself that he searches the hearts and the reins, and that on this knowledge will be founded his final sentence concerning every child of Adam at the great day. Let it also be remembered that he can no more deceive than be deceived, and that these are his words. Must not every sinner in this house who has sufficient sobriety to make an application of them to his own case, and to learn his real situation, tremble at these awful declarations of Christ, and shudder to think what he himself is. Number 2. Convictions of sin constitute in the eye of God an important change in the state of man. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, the change of which I have spoken is so great as to be justly represented by this imagery— before the unclean spirit dwelt in the soul without disturbance. Now he finds himself so strenuously resisted that in despair of future success he quits his habitation, which has become so uncomfortable because it promises so little opportunity of doing mischief. Of course he hastes to some other place, where the same dreadful employment may be more hopefully pursued. The fiend In the language of the great English poet, the fin murmuring flies, and with him fly the shades of night, of that deep and dreadful night which he himself shed over the world within. In a sense, the man has once more become his own and is partially delivered from the deplorable thraldom under which he had so long labored. Certainly this is a great and desirable change, The subtlety, malice, and domination of offend, of passions and appetite strongly resembling the character of offend, have in some good measure been overcome? The captives, in a good degree at liberty to understand and pursue his own salvation. Many of his encumbrances are shaken off, many of his discouragements removed. The victory indeed is not, of course, final, yet it is a victory of vast importance, and is often followed, if perseveringly pursued, perhaps always by consequences interesting beyond conception. How fervently, then, ought every person in this situation to labor, that he may secure all which he has gained, and take advantage of his present commanding ground, to acquire all which remains! How diligently ought every such person to watch against every danger! The approach of every temptation, the assaults of every enemy, and especially the dreadful possession from which he has just escaped. How ardently should he strive against the returns of stupidity, backsliding, and corruption? How fervently to pray that God would enable him to persevere, advance, overcome every obstacle, and finally win the prize of a mortal life. If such persons forsake themselves, God will forsake them. If they forget their souls, they ought to expect that they will be forgotten by their maker. If they despise their own eternal well-being, they cannot hope to escape from the ruin which is before them. We are here taught The beings absolutely sinful find neither rest nor enjoyment, but in doing evil. He walks through the dry desert places seeking rest, and findeth none. While the unclean spirit resided in his former dwelling, he was in a sense settled in ease and quiet, because he was corrupting and destroying the man. The business of corrupting and destroying was all in which he found any ease. The moment his hopes of success in this diabolical business began to fail, he quit his mansion and wandered into a desert where he roamed alone, restless and wretched, and peculiarly wretched because he could no longer successfully pursue the work of destruction. Wickedness is a spirit absolutely solitary. All its social character All its sympathy is nothing but the disposition which unite passions in the fell purpose of plundering, pollution, and murder. With others it joins solely because it cannot accomplish its all errands alone. Even with those it has no union of heart, no fellow feeling, no real sociality. It attracts nothing and nobody. Everything it repels. Hell, with all its millions, is a perfect solitude to each of its inhabitants. They unite only to destroy each other, or to accomplish elsewhere the same work of ruin. Not one of them can find a single friend in all the vast multitude around him. Nay, this immense multitude serves only to make him feel that he is more entirely alone, more perfectly friendless, more absolutely destitute of confidence, affection, and hope such as the true nature of sin or selfishness in every human breast. And although its tendencies are strongly resisted by natural affection in the present world, it bursts in innumerable instances this bond and discovers its fin-like character in the terrible crimes to which it goes our miserable race. Intense Ambition avarice, and voluptuousness, rage, even here, without control, and diffuse around them misery, not a little resembling that of the damned. What an endless multitude have they sacrificed with the sword! What a multitude of victims have they brought to the cross and to the stake! What is this but the temper and the conduct of hell? Even when the spirit appears in a milder form and assumes no violence nor any apparent malice still both its character and its employments are substantially the same to corrupt is to destroy the process is indeed slower but it is equally sure the aspect exhibited by the spirit of corruption is indeed less forbidding but the mischiefs which it does are not in the end less dreadful Every seducer, every tempter, is at the bottom an enemy and a villain, and nothing can be more false than the professions made by men of this character. Number 4. Persons under conviction are always in danger of falling anew into hardness of heart. He saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. At first... And for a time, he despaired of gaining a final victory over the man whose soul he inhabited. And in this despair, leaving him to himself, wandered into the desert. But after looking in vain for a new victim, he began to indulge fresh hopes of his reoccupying his former residence. Accordingly, he determined to return and make it his permanent abode. The first victory, which is gained when the soul becomes convinced of its sins is far from being final. It is a happy beginning, and if followed by vigorous and unremitted efforts, is a propitious prelude to future success. But he who rests here, and feels as if he had already attained, or were already safe, is ruined, of course. He has become convinced of his guilt, and has thus advanced a necessary step towards eternal life. But he has not turned to God, And without this version, all which is done will be nothing. Probably every person who is under a strong conviction of his guilt is assailed by many temptations. Either he will distrust and despair of the divine mercy, or he will be induced to trust presumptuously in his own righteousness, or to feel satisfied of his ability to save himself, or he will settle down in a state of sloth. Or he will be persuaded to procrastinate the work of repentance. Or he will yield himself up to the guidance of erroneous teachers. Or search out for himself erroneous doctrines. Or he will depend on impulses and other vain dictates of a wild imagination. In these circumstances, some individuals strenuously resist both the allurements and the terrors. Others become victims to them. The former overcome the latter fall, and often irrevocably. Of the truth of the observations which I have made here, the conversation of persons in a state of conviction furnishes evidence but too decisive. A minister of the gospel is by his office made a witness, to a great extent, to the secret feelings of the heart and persons thus situated. The very things which have been here mentioned, I have myself heard in such conversation, and have seen the subsequent conduct. Without hesitation, therefore, I pronounce the observations to be true. How important, then, is it that every individual in such a state should be aware of his danger, watch incessantly against his enemies, and resist them without intermission? How indispensable is it that he should pray always with all prayer for the grace of God to save him from temptation and rescue him from utter ruin, Let every such person present be awake alive and alarmed by a sense of its exposure and tremble at the thought of being overcome by his destroyers, number five. The soul from which convictions of sin have been finally banished is more perfectly prepared to become the seat of absolute wickedness than before these convictions began. And when he is come, he finds it empty, swept, and garnished. An empty house is vacant for the reception of a new inhabitant. A house swept is rendered clean to make his residence agreeable. A house garnished is with pleasure prepared to welcome such an inhabitant, and designed to exhibit the respect with which the original tenant regards his new guest, and the open testimonies of honor which he is disposed to render to him, will be remembered that all his preparation is voluntary on the part of the owner, and is all designed for the convenience and pleasure of the new occupant. It proves, therefore, that such an occupant was expected and intended to reside where all these preparations had been made. Thus, after the conflict with sin and the fears of danger are over, the soul becomes quieted of all its former apprehensions and inactive as to all future resistance. The work, though not done, is ended and the struggles, though they have failed of their purpose, are given over. The soul has ceased from its opposition and considering the effort is too laborious, and the self-denial is too great, relinquishes the conflict with scarcely a hope of resuming it at any future period. Satisfied that with 10,000 it is unable to meet him that comes against it with 20,000, it languishes away its energy and settles down into a state of hopeless torpidity. It began to build but was not able to finish. From this time it recedes visibly from the solemnity and concern which it before manifested about its sins and its salvation and becomes gradually hardened in iniquity and alienated from God. Ordinarily this progress is not without its interruptions, without checks of conscience, without restraints of the spirit of grace. With some irregularities it is however continual. It is too constant. Too rapid and too hopeless, and but too often does a man conclude to make no further efforts and to bid adieu to every prospect of eternal life. Number six. The soul from which convictions are finally banished becomes far more sinful than before its convictions began. Then he goes and takes with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. 7 is here, but for an indefinite number, and may be considered as standing for many. It was also regarded by the Jews as a perfect number, and may therefore denote, in the present case, the worst, or the number the most fitted to complete the wickedness and ruin of the man. At the least it denotes a greater number than one, and in proportion a greater series of temptations and dangers." These seven are also universally more wicked than the original tenant of this impure habitation, more absolutely possessed of the fin like character than himself. Each's danger is, of course, greater. From all, how great, how dreadful! What a house has this become! With what inhabitants is it filled? To what purpose is it destined? And what uses is it employed? Such, however, is the real state of the man in question." The soul in this case has overcome, with many struggles, and against many motives, its strong sense of guilt and its distressing apprehensions of danger. In this conflict a man has hardened his heart and blinded his eyes. He has been exposed, perhaps, to the ridicule of his companions, to the deceitfulness of their sophistry, and to the baleful influence of their example, to calm Contemplative, safe, fireside, he is left for the haunts of sense and sin, his sober, virtuous friends for the company of seducers, and the instructions of piety for the snares of pleasure. From the remonstrances of conscience, he is retreated to the noise and gaiety of licentious sport, from the house of God to the theater and the gaming table, and from the path of life to the broad and crooked road which leads him to destruction. Fears and distresses, which a little while since compelled him to solemn thought and temporary external reformation, he forces away by joining with others in their contempt and derision. Of the praise or approbation of God, he now becomes regardless, but of that of his companions and in iniquity, he is more and more ambitious. A little while since, their commendation would have awakened in his mind nothing but alarm, now he dreads nothing so much as their censor. They are at once his instructors, his rules, and his example. Once he hoped that he should resemble the Redeemer, have the same mind which was in him, and walk as he walked. Now a soul wishes to be like them. Henceforth his progress is only downward. From the commission of one sin he is of course led to another, and from those which are less to those which are greater. If life lasts, he becomes in the end a profligate, and an air of distinguished wretchedness beyond the grave. If he does not go to the most horrid and abandoned length, it is because God exercises more kindness to him than he to himself. Often a person of this description becomes ambitious to be, and to show himself, the first in every proposal to vice and career of sin, and in every band of sinners. In the indulgence of the spirit, he usually makes it his prime business to appear as an open opposer of religion, a despiser of good men, a reviler of the scriptures, a contemner of the Sabbath, a ridiculer of the sanctuary. Not unfrequently might he with justice be addressed as Elimus, the sorcerer, was by Paul. O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness." Wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? His station he voluntarily takes in the front of the host and ventures into the thickest of the battle. Too far, therefore, does he advance to think of retreating. His pride, his self-consistency make him regard the subject only with disdain, and push him on to every hostile effort against his maker. After some time spent in this manner, he learns habitually to feel as if embarked in a continual warfare, and as if always in arms. Thus, instead of being influenced, deceived, and controlled by one fin, he is spurred and goaded on by a band of Fins, is kept always vigorously active in iniquity, violently at war with God, and in a steady direction of all his energy against truth and salvation." Last and most dreadful of all, as he has finally resisted with gross insult the most benevolent efforts of the Holy Spirit to win him from guilt, to restore him to holiness, and to entitle him to endless life, as he has crucified afresh the Son of God, accounted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and put him to open shame, as he has despised the riches of the goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering of God, and after his hardness and impenitent heart has treasured up wrath against the day of wrath, he is forsaken by that spirit to whom he has done this despot, forgotten by that Redeemer whom he has thus requited, and given up by that Father of all mercies against whom he has thus rebelled to a reprobate mind. Henceforth he is only endured as a vessel of wrath fitted for destruction, at first a partial, then an open infidel, exiled from the sanctuary, scorning the scriptures, and making a mock of sin and holiness alike. It becomes impossible that he should be renewed to repentance. No more sacrifice for sin remains for him but a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. Accordingly, God sends upon him strong delusion that he should believe a lie and be damned, because he believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The Savior only weeps over him, is over Jerusalem, crying with a tenderness inexpressible. How often would I have gathered thee as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not. Oh, that you had known, even thou in this thy day the things which belong to your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Woe unto you, miserable apostate! It shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for you." Application. From this passage of scripture thus explained we learn 1. The immeasurable importance of cherishing in the heart convictions of sin. The state of mind denoted by this phraseology is, I acknowledge, often wearisome and distressing. To have a realizing consciousness of our guilt to have vivid apprehensions of the danger which it involves, to look back on a life spent only in rebellion against God and forward with a fearful expectation of suffering the effects of his anger against impenitence is unquestionably terrifying to an awakened mind, And but for the aid given us by the tender mercy of our Creator would easily overwhelm us with agony and despair that we should earnestly wish for deliverance from such a condition is inwoven in our nature, that we should feel desirous of a deliverance from it by almost any means, especially when laboring under peculiar anguish, and still more especially when that anguish has been long continued, may not unnaturally be expected from the frailty and feebleness of our character. Hence, multitudes have in all ages of Christianity been found, who under the pressure of painful truths and distressing apprehensions, have, like some of our Savior's hearers, turned back and refused no more to walk with Christ. and the text, the danger of this conduct is exhibited in the most terrible manner. Let me beseech you solemnly to ponder this awful representation. Ponder it deeply. Ponder it often let it lie near your hearts, let it awaken all your fears. You may possibly reply that this is a figurative representation, a parable, an allegory, be it so. Construe it as favorably for yourselves as you can. Soften its terrible declaration as much as you can. There will still remain in it sufficient alarms to make the ears of every one of you who is not deaf to tingle, and the heart of every one of you who is not torpid to shrink with dismay. From a state of conviction, however distressing it may seem, there are but two ways of escape. One of them leads to endless life, the other to endless death. The former is a way of repentance, faith, and holiness. The latter, that of stupidity, hardness of heart, the presumption of sin, and the abandonment of religion. Of those who terminate their convictions, how different is the disposition, the progress, and the end? Who would not choose the former? Who would not tremble to assume the latter? Cherish, then, if you possess them, these convictions, however painful they may seem, however long they may continue. Keep your eyes open upon your guilt, upon your danger, and upon the only way of escape from both. Search your scriptures diligently for those instructions and warnings, which on the one hand will teach you your duty and your danger, and on the other will keep your minds vigorously alive to the importance of both. The threatenings found in that sacred book meet with awe and apprehension. The invitations and the promises welcome with gratitude, wonder, and delight. Mark the gracious terms in which they are given, and adore the divine spirit of condescension and mercy by which they are dictated. Regard the distresses which you feel at this period as a wise man regards the probe by which his wounds are searched and healed. To yourselves you may seem as losing a right eye or a right hand, but remember that it is better to enter into life maimed than with two eyes and two hands to be cast into the fire of hell. Bow your knees daily to the Father of all mercies, with the language and spirit of the publican, and cry each of you to him in anguish of heart, God, be merciful unto me a sinner. Seize every opportunity to converse with that frankness which opens all the heart, with good men whose affectionate instructions may enlighten, quicken, and strengthen you, may give you consolation and hope, and persuade you to endure to the end. We also learn from this parable the miserable situation of unawakened sinners. These persons have not indeed incurred all the guilt and all the danger of those who have been the principal subjects of this discourse. Still, their condition is and is here exhibited as being deplorable. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, says our Savior, the departure of the unclean spirit. If the commentators to whom I have referred have construed the passage aright, is the era at which convictions begin in the soul. Of course, till this time, he resided there in quiet. Think what it is for the soul to be possessed by the foul and dreadful inhabitant, and remember that the representation is that of Christ himself. It is therefore just. Sin, an unclean spirit of sufficient subtlety, foulness, power, and malignity, to corrupt any mind beyond the hope of restoration, In the case supposed, the case as there is, but too much reason to fear, of not a small number in this assembly, the excessive danger lies in this every such person is at ease concerning his moral condition. This unclean spirit has acquired an entire ascendancy over him, and dwells and reigns in his heart without a rival, and without an attempt to resist his influence or to escape from his dominion. All is quiet and silent within. But it is still the stillness of death and the repose of the grave. Be roused, then, to a sense of your condition. Open your eyes to your sins, your guilt, your approaching ruin. Feel that you are in greater danger because you suppose yourself safe. Insensibilities, the torpor of the apoplexy. You sleep on the top of a mast and the waves of perdition roll beneath you. How can you hope to escape if you will not so much as open your eyes to see your danger? Remember how often the alarm has been rung in your ears and has left you as it found you crying in half-articulated sounds. A little more sleep. A little more slumber. A little more folding of the hands to sleep. You have been tenants of the tomb and have slumbered over the pit of destruction. If you are not lifeless... If you are not hopeless, listen. The voice of inspiration calls to you, awake or sleep, to wake no more. Timothy Dwight